Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry here at Spurgeon College, the undergraduate institution of Midwestern Seminary. And as always, I'm sitting across from my colleague, my friend, a pastor, Ronnie Kurtz, who is assistant director of marketing. Is that correct? He's, he's not. <laughs> I never write this down. <laughs> We're like eight times into this. I, I know. It. Well, I never. I, I'm always inclined to make the joke, and yeah. just the joke is old. I can't it, keep doing the, the traveling secretary yeah. deal or assistant to the regional manager. That's right. So yeah. I thought, you know, to respect you, yeah, I should get the title right. <laughs> and, and so here we are. But I didn't even write it down. So I, that's I, right. I, I 90 percent respect you. That's 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 more than most people. <laughs> so I'll take it. <laughs> that's more than most people respect me. I think. So yeah. It's good. It's good. Just I'm outdoing I one another, it. showing honor. I'm outdoing well, I appreciate you. Appreciate it. Brother, how, how are things been? Um, you, you've got some some news since we last recorded. Yes. yes. Yeah. Since we last yeah, recorded, what happened? Uh, my wife had our first baby. Yeah. So I'm officially a dad. I joined team uh, girl dad. That's right. A little girl. That's right. So I had a daughter and she, at the time of this recording, she is uh, four weeks old yesterday. Wow. So Is she sleeping through the night? Not quite. We're getting there. <laughs> that was a joke, by the way. Okay. Because okay. it's like, I'm sure yeah. you get that from a lot of people. Oh, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's like the number one question. We're right now, we're in the season of parenting where we're trying to drop the post-midnight feeding. So yeah. like the 3 a.m. feeding, we're trying to drop it. And she sometimes I, is into that plan and sometimes not into that plan. I got so. you. I got you. Yeah, with, with our firstborn, I, I just got so sick of the question. And it, would, it gave me so much guilt because I'm yeah. like, Man, I mean, is my baby broken that people keep asking me this? <laughs> they can't think of anything else to ask. Yeah. But it's basically the how's the weather version of parenting chit, of chit chat. Yeah, yeah. Right. small talk related to parenting. Yeah. With the second kid, when they started asking it, I was ready. There, you know, seems <laughs> that I'm like, she's new. Yeah. She hasn't figured out things yet, so we're not putting some pressure on her. That's right. That's you good. <laughs> That's good. We're not real worried about it if she's not sleeping through the night because she's she's new to the world. Yeah. Yeah. So, so she's still figuring things out. Yeah. I mean, we love it. We love parenting. Um, I think you know this, Jared, but we actually uh, fought through infertility for a number of yeah. years. And so, uh, man, just holding her it feels like the grace of God what a uh, blessing. really tangibly. So we're, we're loving it and trying to soak it up. Yeah. Yeah. Being a girl dad is amazing. Yeah. I, mean, I, I don't know what, what thoughts or, or, or visions or, you know, that you guys had before uh, Finley was born in terms of family planning and family vision and all, all that sort of thing. But I didn't, um, when, when I started thinking about such things, I did not want to be the dad to girls. I did not really? want daughters. Okay. Yeah. And part of it was I grew up just with one brother. And you know, so I didn't grow up around, you know, little girls or anything yeah. like that. And I just thought, oh, you know, the high maintenance and they're whiny or this is, this was my stereotype. And yeah. so I'm confessing sin here. And I just wanted boys. And Becky and I were kind of agreed, like, if, if we could pick, you know, we would want just boys. Hmm. And Becky grew up with three sisters. So make of that what you will, that she, yeah. she, would want, that she wanted sons. And, um, and then we had two little girls and man, I wouldn't trade I, you oh, know, yeah. for the world. And I would see like little boys in the playground when my kids are little and I would be like these little booger eating monsters. <laughs> I'm so glad they're filthy, disgusting monkeys. And yeah. I'm so glad I have little girls. Man, I love, I've, I told Kristen when we had our, our daughter's name was Finley. Um, there were two people in my life who I just loved their relationship with their daughters. You were one of them, and then a, a colleague of ours, Charles Smith, uh, uh, was another one. And so that, like, kind of seeing you guys interact with your daughters was um, one of the things that made me really want a girl. So, yeah. yeah, so I'm thankful. Well, they're so sweet. And, and you know, the future, you know, if the if the stereotype proves true, is that girls tend to stay closer to home. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, somebody once told me— um, uh, a 
a son is a son until he until he marries, uh-huh. but a daughter is is a daughter forever. Okay. Um, okay. And I hope I hope that's true. Yeah. I mean, you know, I want you know, we have one who's pretty much left the nest. She's away at college, uh-huh. and another one who wants to do the same. And so we're not afraid of the empty nest. Yeah. But certainly, um, I look forward to knowing them and being friends with them in yes. their in their adult life. <laughs> and every stage has been awesome. So don't listen. I'm gonna give you some advice right now. Please Anyone do. Else listening? I'm, I'm listening because as Finley gets older, and if you have more daughters, especially um, as as they get older, but as she gets older. People are going to warn you about every stage, like mm. that girls are insufferable when they're teenagers and et cetera, et cetera. And um, I, I'm sure every individual person has a potential for being insufferable in, in their life. But we did not have that experience. Mm. It, it's It's been amazing. I love um, that. They love each other. They love Jesus. Um, they're delightful people to be around, right? You know, not 100% of the of time. Course, but yeah. none of us are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but nothing particular about being a teenage girl. That's you know, awesome. For sure. I love it. So it's been amazing just watching them. With their, you know, grow up into their own views yeah. and, and, and mature spiritually. Maybe we should uh, do an episode about daughters one We day. should do that. That's a good idea. We should do that. and then we'll get, I know nothing, so I just want to listen to what yeah, you have we'll to get say. The, we'll yeah. get the rights to ha- listen to it when you're prepared to cry. <laughs> Paul Simon. Have you ever heard it? Paul Simon has a song about daughters. Oh, yes. I, I had like okay. three people send it to me. Oh, my word. Yep. I, I made the big mistake of doing a slideshow of... <laughs> My oldest daughter, when she was itty bitty, little you know photos from when she was tiny, yeah, to that song, and I couldn't get through it. Oh, I bet I about broke my laptop with the liquid that was coming out of my <laughs> eyes and short circuiting the thing. But anyway, okay, so you've already heard it. But yeah, uh, yeah, I've heard it. Yeah, listener, if you're, um, you know, if you have daughters or or, or just want to cry, listen to Paul Simon's <laughs> song about daughters. Uh, but that's great. It's a great bit of news. Yeah. And speaking and... of news. Uh, transition time. <laughs> <laughs> the classic you Jared like Wilson transition. It's the turn. It's the big turn. I've even I got me on, on that one. I was planning that on the drive in. I was like, how am I going to transition? I, because I want to open with asking him like about the big news. And I was like, oh, news. We're talking about news. There you go. Yeah. So wow. this is a new sort of installment, a new feature we're going to do probably once every three months or so. Um, kind of commenting on headlines, some of the things that are in the news. One of the things I, I, I like about For the Church, the website, and, and of course, the uh, uh, podcast, is something that was baked in from the beginning, which is we don't do hot takes. That's right. <laughs> I mean, every now and then, um, you know, certainly we'll comment on some cultural things that are going on. You'll see that on the website, responses, that sort of thing. But we, by and large, try to stay away from following the headlines, following what people are arguing about necessarily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to find a whole lot of political stuff or the nine things to know about this cultural issue uh, we don't think there's anything wrong with that per se, and and we're grateful for the you know Christian resources that do you know meet that need or that desire. Um, but we've tried to just stay focused on devotional content, pastoral content, practical yep. content, and so we don't want this to become kind of a you know whatever's going on yeah. in, in the world. And you know part of the way you and I work against that is we record weeks, sometimes months in advance, mm-hmm. so we could be talking about how cold it is outside, and the episode <laughs> comes out in July or something. Uh, that's just how this works. That's because we're good at cold takes. That's right. That's right. <laughs> we're not recording week to week. We we, we record in advance. But I did think it, it, it. You know, there are you know you know some things that happen in the news and the headlines that are uh, of importance to the state of the church and to evangelicalism specifically um, that might be worth commenting on every mm-hmm. few months, perhaps. So this is the first installment of the headlines feature of the FTC podcast, and I've got um, a few things, uh, two or three things here that I think maybe we could. Um, sort of discuss. And the first is this, right? So this year uh, we see the new iteration 
of the State of Theology Survey, which is sort of a, a joint effort between Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Christian Resources, um, together polled um, U.S. respondents about a, a series of theological questions. And of course, what we discover each each time the survey comes out, and the, and the uh, 2020 version of the survey is, is really no different, an increasing sense of urgency or increase, mm-hmm. uh, an increasing need of urgency as it relates to uh, the erosion of biblical literacy, uh, certainly the uh, deterioration of, of, of orthodoxy, mm-hmm. or at least it would appear. That's right. So there's a few things. Maybe you've got some notes that, that you want to talk about. But uh, some of the like notable findings in the survey, um, for instance, is on the question of um, Christology, on the nature of, of Jesus himself. Who is Jesus? That's right. This was probably the most startling. Without a doubt. Yeah. <laughs> the most yeah. startling finding from the survey. Um, the, the claim is essentially this, or the statement is this, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. And they asked um, you know, adult respondents in, in, in the U.S., and then they had a subsection where they pulled out the data from those who identify as evangelical, evangelical respondents. Uh, the adult respondents are somewhat um, surprising in the fact that um, there's 36% of the general population who disagree with the statement. Yeah, yeah. Implying that they think Jesus is God. Mm-hmm. So probably identifying evangelicals would be among that that mm-hmm. subset. But that's higher than I thought it oh, would yes, be. Oh, yes, without a doubt. I thought it would be much lower. But um, the distressing data point is uh, evangelical respondents, mm-hmm. U.S. evangelical respondents, hearing the, the statement, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Um. Thirty percent, roughly a third of evangelicals agree. Roughly a third of evangelicals are not evangelicals. Are not evangelicals. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you know, help me unpack that. There's a couple more things we can look at, but just this one alone. Yeah. So is that you know your your sort of uh, interpretation of it is is not that they are evangelicals sort of confused about the statement or confused about what their church teaches, but they're probably not even church-going evangelicals. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's what I would assume, at least. I mean, okay. I, could be, I could be wrong, but I, I, I assume, I, I love this report from Ligonier every other year. It comes out every two years. Yeah. And uh, I always use it. And I, I teach a, a intro to theology class uh, a number of different places, but I always use this data to demonstrate some of the urgency of kind of the task at hand. And I assume that the word evangelical in this survey is a lot like the word evangelical in political polls. Okay. Where what I mean by that is it means almost nothing at this point. You know, it's a it's a cultural phenomenon that has uh, hardly anything anymore to do with religious history or theological conviction or confessions or, or something like that. So Yeah, um I, I I hope you're right. I hope it's just simply a matter of identity confusion. People who identify with a tribe per se because the other alternative is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that these are church-going people, and I, I, I don't think it's far-fetched to say there are church-going people who, you know, obviously are are not evangelical by by you know personal confession, but they are by profession in yeah, some way right. because they identify by attending you know attending a church, and they're confused because the church isn't clear. Yeah, their churches are not clear on these things. Um, 
I find that a little distressing. Yes, that's <laughs> or right. Or a lot distressing. Yeah. That the nature of Jesus, that 30% of, of self-identifying evangelicals would would agree that he, he's just a great teacher and yeah. not God. Yeah. Yeah, another another one of their questions that got me is in Christology, because I, I agree with you that your assessment that the Christological portions were the most alarming. I mean, all yeah. of them were alarming, but the Christological portions were like, there is something seriously broken here. But uh, statement six, Jesus is the first and greatest created being. All right. Or Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 44% of evangelicals, so I'm looking at the evangelical data, 44% of self-proclaiming evangelicals said strongly agree. <laughs> strongly agree. Strongly agree. Not just agree. Yeah. 12% said they agree. And 11% said not sure. So you're looking at over half yeah. of self-proclaiming evangelicals. Re- re- read the statement again. Here's the statement again. Jesus is the first and greatest created being by God. Yeah. We so, have a term for that in history. It's called Arianism. It's called Arianism. <laughs> well, if I'm going to be a, a cynic, okay, and I want to analyze the question. So first of all, the first um, created being uh, kind of throws off, you know, throws me off. But I'm wondering if someone who's just not um, astute at, at reading theological statements may think, well, yes, the Son of God is God, but Jesus was incarnate at some point, yeah. and they're equating that with created. created. Yeah. He, he entered a created form, right. Yeah. right? He entered matter, uh, or imbo- yeah, he embodied himself, he incarnated, and maybe that's what they're thinking? Yeah. And Am this I is, being too optimistic? <laughs> I think you're being probably too optimistic. Okay. all right. <laughs> um, this is why, listen, if you're a, if you have any kind of followership, whether that's a church or a small blog or something, this is why we need revival of old creeds because they prevent these kinds of things. I mean, we have the language in Nicaea of begotten, not made. So we know that this should not be an acceptable interpretation of Colossians 1, for example, or or name your passage. Um, This is not how we conceive of the incarnation of Jesus and that the church church fathers can really help there. Yeah. Um, Statement number three about the acceptance of other religions, mm-hmm. so the kind of pluralism question, God accepts the worship of all religions, yeah. including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And this is a very—I was not surprised by this. Um, 42% of U.S. evangelicals agreed mm. with that statement that God accepts the worship of all religions. Now, again, thinking optimistically— you may think, oh, well, they're fudging on things like God hears their prayers, perhaps, or, or something like that, or he hears them. But no, I mean, the acceptance of worship, and, and I remember this pushback, actually, because in my book, Unparalleled, um, I, I made the, the claim in one of the chapters that, that um, Jews and Muslims um, do not worship the same God as Christians. Mm-hmm. And I had people who were very angry at me. Christians who were angry at me, particularly wow. on the Jewish question. And I tried to make the case in the book for that, which is to say, if you do not worship the triune God, you're not worshiping the true God. Mm-hmm. You, you don't worship a piece of God or a part of God that he has not disclosed himself to be yeah. and, and claim that that is God. Your, your version of God is not God. His version of God is God. That's right, yeah. Um, and, you know, so I had people that, you know, that were really angry with me, and I think it's just a very common view, particularly, you know, I think if you eat— if you took Islam out, I mm-hmm. bet the number would go up. Hmm. If you said God accepts the worship of 
of religions, including Christianity and Judaism, I, I would be willing to bet that 42% would actually go oh, yeah. up further. But just that you even have you know, Islam in there and 42% of evangelicals would agree, it's, it's very similar to this, um, uh, you know, to the idea that, that all roads lead to the same place, right. that yep. we just all have bits and pieces of the revelation and, you know, you worship according to your culture, mm-hmm. um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, talk to me about, about this one. Um, it, it's, it's not, oh, panic-inducing high, but um, it, it, it's larger, of course, than we would want. <laughs> Statement number 29 about gender identity, which is an increasing yeah. controversy and in, in, in issue, uh, particularly in the West and certainly in the U.S., um, having lots of legal ramifications. Mm-hmm. In fact, just this week, there's another headline, and I don't have it in front of me, but um, there's apparently a, a push to pass a bill or some kind of law that um, would preclude biological males from participating in female sports mm. um, because the the transgender movement is really just sort of demolishing uh, female competition right. and yeah. and and females being able to flourish in 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 their own sports. Uh, but so gender identity is a matter of choice. Twenty two percent of U.S. evangelicals uh, agreed with that with that statement, which tells us something about, um, yeah, what, what churches are teaching or not teaching or what the culture is known for or not known for any, any reflections on that? Yeah, I think, um, one of the things that I, I try to teach my theology students is that it seems to be, you know, this is a little bit too clean, of course. Um, it seems to be that the Lord is pleased to deal with certain theological issues in certain theological eras. So for example, in the early church, we really, the Lord did a, such a good, such, such a, he was so gracious in allowing us to preserve our Trinitarianism, our Christology. In the medieval era, you get a, a major preservation of the doctrine of God. In the Reformation, obviously, we get some soteriology and um, um, scripture. Those are kind of the focus. And I think in the modern era, at least right now, a major area of preservation that the Lord is giving us, or at least something that we need, is theological anthropology. And I think you can see it in, in the results of, of this particular question. Um, the, the question of who are you, uh, what are you to do, what are you made for, those are very important theological questions these days. And these kinds of numbers show us that there's still work to do. Yeah, and I wonder if, if, if questions like that, uh, well, I don't wonder, I, I believe they're directly tied to even more foundational questions like uh, statement uh, number 11. Everyone sins, you know, everyone sins a little. Yep. But most people are good by yeah. na- by nature. That's right. Good by nature, and this is U.S. evangelicals, not just the the broad survey of, of U.S. Uh, adults, but U.S. evangelicals. Forty six percent agree yeah. with the statement. So roughly half of evangelicals say people are good by nature. Mm-hmm. So we've lost the doctrine of sin. We've we've lost biblical anthropology. Yeah. Um, as it pertains to um, you know the sin nature and and the fall. Therefore. That has these these connection points to thing to things like gender identity. That's right. right. Because if people are just good by nature, then maybe those decisions they make really are up to them, mm-hmm. and they're being true to themselves, et cetera, et cetera. Let's. Um, I mean, because there's more we could pick apart course, here, yeah. and and the question on on whether the Bible is literally literally true, um, things like that. That percentage of people who disagree with that statement continues to go up mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and other surveys that have come out related to evangelicals' views of the Bible itself um, just show year by year or survey by survey an erosion of, of uh, fidelity to the scriptures mm-hmm. or trustworthiness of the script, 
the trust in the scriptures, I, I guess I should say. Um, and, and it's all just very, it's all very discouraging. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it shouldn't be surprising, I suppose. But what is the major malfunction, do you think? What's, you know, is it because we're just not reciting creeds or what, <laughs> what is it that, that we're doing or well, not doing? Well, I'm for reciting creeds. Okay, that's I don't, good. I don't think that's going to be the ultimate answer, but I honestly think a lot of it is an overemphasis on, on pragmatics. And uh, this is going to come up again uh, with some of the other headlines that we want to talk about, but uh, I just, I see it, I hear it, I feel it in many modern churches the idea that theology is just something that you guys do over there. Yeah. And we're, we're just trying to figure out how to love Jesus and get through our daily lives. And if it's not practical, then the American Christian is not interested. And so, and what I would want to argue to, to all of our listeners is there is nothing more practical than having a more grand vision of who God is and what he is doing. Yeah. You can give your people, you can give yourself Nothing more practical than a bigger vision of who God is and what he's doing. And so I, I would just say, listen, if you, are, if you have an awe-theological ministry or if you have an awe-theological uh, bookshelf or you're just missing theology from your life, you're not only missing accurate information, you are missing out on joy. And you're leaving a lot of joy on the field because there's a lot of joy to be had in thinking uh, well for the glory of God and the good of his people. And that includes you, thinking well uh, for yourself, uh, there's a lot of joy to be had there. I, I agree. I also think, you know, there's something that a lot of us have been sounding the alarm about over the last 10, 15, 20 years related to how churches use the Bible and how they preach and teach the Bible. Right. So you're just beginning in the, in the worship gathering, but also beyond that, discipleship. This is a discipleship deficit, mm-hmm. and there's lots of fronts, mm-hmm. um, you know, to wage this battle on, but it, it all boils down to how we're shaping our people to follow Christ. And when you have, you know, a, a, a major, you know, movement or, or, or mode, I guess I should say, of, of church preaching and teaching that treats the Bible like Bartlett's book of quotations. That's right, yeah. And, and not as the <laughs> inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God, you're going to have professing Christians who treat the Bible like it's not literally true or, yes. or not foundational, but as just kind of the personal source book for their mm-hmm. own their own motivation, their own their own energy, um, and so this is just a direct result of the discipleship deficit. Yeah, that's right. Okay, let's talk about our next headline here, and it is related to Christian higher education. We have a article by Liam Adams, which was published September 9th, so about a month ago from this recording. Um, Christian colleges are changing to survive. Is it working? And there's a related article also um, by Alan Noble, just kind of um, in a pullout version of, of this article online. Christian colleges are in crisis. Here's what that means for the church. So there's a few things, of course, that these, these articles are, are highlighting, and I thought it'd be worth you know, discussing since we both work for a Christian higher education <laughs> institution. Right. Um, but we have lots of friends who do as well, mm-hmm. and it's, it's an ongoing concern for a few reasons, not just COVID this season, but uh, we're looking at things like the declining birth rate, for instance, That's and right. this is something that I know is on the radar of the leadership here, that there'll be fewer <clears throat> fewer potential students mm-hmm. um, going into the future in the next 10 years or so because of the declining birth rate. And we need to adapt to this, yes, um, but what are some things that, that colleges can be doing? You know, because we're seeing some clothes left and right, and it's yeah. not just Christian higher ed. Right. It, it's really across the board. Um, you know, lots of, uh, of schools are in financial difficulty because of this, and we're needing to make changes to, to be able to adapt to 
the changing demographics, the changing times. Um, and the big piece of that, of course, is, is online education. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I remember when I was looking at seminary um, education right after college, uh, there weren't a lot of schools that had, um, you know, distance courses. There weren't hardly any that I can think of that were online, so to speak, mm-hmm. where you could get, you know, um, you know, if you could get a degree on, on, on the Internet, that would not be a good thing, right? <laughs> Nobody looked at that as like, oh, yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, it would be some kind of diploma mill or something, mm-hmm. something like that. Um, but the, the, the distance options were very few as well, and there were only, a, you know, a handful of, of accredited seminaries. Um, you know, and even to narrow that down about, you know, to ones that I would feel personally that I could affiliate with confessionally or something like that was even mm-hmm. fewer. Mm-hmm. But now everyone's online. And there's a big push to say, this is actually where the future is going. This is where we should be going. Any thoughts on, on um, you know, that crisis or the, or the tension point there? Yeah. So, Jared, we've made a joke on this podcast a number of times that I am a member of the Get Along Gang and that I don't <laughs> have any beefs with anything. And, uh, and that, is, that is largely true. I kind of just live my life, you know, not in a super angry place or a super mellow place, kind of I'm steady, right you know. I'm right in the middle, and okay. uh, and I don't. I do try to get along with most things, but education is like what I care about the most. And okay. so, like, if my blood was going to get boiled, it, <laughs> it's over this. All like right. these, the 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 first headline and the second headline. So I care about this conversation. And you might have even seen. Uh, it was silly, but it, even during the presidential debate, I even said online. You know, this is basically a 90-minute argument for why we should all pursue the humanities. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and, all right. And, and this is exactly what I mean is it, it b- actually breaks my heart to see the decline in not just colleges, but in especially liberal arts colleges and even more specifically in the humanities. Okay. Uh, I think maybe it's my skeptical optimism, but I actually think you're – we – hopefully, are on the verge of seeing somewhat of a rise in the humanities. And in some, some schools are seeing that already in the sense of when you watch something like the presidential debate where who cares about you know, what candidate you actually like or want to vote for in the election, that was just a train wreck of um, unkindness. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. <laughs> and, and unthoughtfulness in a lot of ways. And uh, well, I, I think what you're going to start seeing is a pendulum swing of sorts of, you know what, we can't live off of sound bites and we can't live off of unthoughtfulness. And we, we just cannot continue to do public thought, intellectual life the way that we have done it. And my hope, my small piece of optimism is that young people will see, no, I need to learn how to think. And I obviously want to learn what to think, but I need to learn how to think. And I, I hope that comes with it a rise in literature, a, a rise in philosophy, a rise in history, a rise in, of course, theology, which is my field, um, just a rise in the humanities in general. And so, so anyways, to answer your question, this report breaks my heart, but I don't think it's the end of the world because I do think you're going to start seeing somewhat of a cultural course correction of I can't live my life on social media. I can't live my life by sound bites. I need to learn how to think. Yeah. Um, you know, I come at this uh, in a slightly different angle as well, because I know that there's a, obviously demographic financial concerns that are, you know, driving the move to all go, you know, to go mm-hmm. largely online or to, you know, cut programs. That, you know, that's one of the things that um, Liam Adams' article 
uh, addresses is the sort of strategic way of of culling, um, you know, amenities or mm-hmm. um, even staff layoffs and all those sorts of things to be able to adjust and and stay viable. Um, I come at it in a, in a slightly different angle, which is to say um, I'm, I'm looking at what schools like ours have done because our we're one of the few our, our enrollment has increased right. in in you know this fall semester where most schools have gone down. There's a few schools, uh, including ours, that have seen an increase in enrollment, not just online, but on campus mm-hmm. as well, residential That's right. enrollment, which was the big kind of question mark um, coming out of the kind of COVID summer. Would we see people who are skittish about residential life or, or you know, attending classes on campus and that sort of thing? Um, I think th- the adapting we have to do to work not just towards um, increased enrollment across the board, but the increased, um, I think, importance of, of residential education, the, the kind of classical community, um, you know, formation that comes with your education is really to adapt to, um, in particular in, in Christian higher ed, in, in seminaries in particular, um, is adapt to the growing need among students to not feel like they're leaving Mm. Uh, a mission, a context, yeah. um, real training. So, for instance, just you know, this past weekend, I was speaking to um, a pastor who um, you know went to another seminary and really enjoyed his time there. Um, but he was saying at the seminary that he attended, there were numerous local churches that were, of course, hospitable to seminary students and and, and glad to have them. But there was no really kind of formal training or mm. sense of involvement beyond. Uh, membership and it created kind of a competitive class to say there were you know he he, he had classmates who th- they were members of a church for the three four years or what have you that they were at seminary but then when they came out and now they're looking for a pastorate they didn't really have any church experience mm-hmm. teaching reps things mm-hmm. like that to speak of so a lot of the adapting I think that that churches need to do to attract more students who are interested in in ministry and mission is begin thinking in ways uh, of community formation. Mm-hmm. So I'm grateful for not just our focus on being for the church, but the many ways we flesh that out here. And I don't you know, mean for this to sound like an advertisement for Midwestern <laughs> Seminary, um, but this is a Midwestern Seminary podcast, so yeah, I, guess, right. I guess I can plug it that's right. uh, if I don't mind. Um, but institutionally, things like the Timothy Track, where we have you know, relationships with multiple local churches. I don't mm-hmm. know how many at this point, but um, plenty of local churches where students can, can um, you know, be employed in internships in local churches, and there's an exchange where the church you know, provides a certain amount of tuition for them to attend seminary. So you're getting real you know, on, on the front lines experience yeah. in a church in, in that environment. Um, even things like the residency mm-hmm. um, at the doctoral level, which provides just sort of a uh, you know, communal supplement, formation supplement mm-hmm. to your you know, doctoral education, which incentivizes residential doctoral mm-hmm. training, whereas, you know, we still have the modular component and you don't have to move here or live here to be a part of the, you know, to study, uh, uh, to pursue your doctorate here. Um, and, and that's kind of the major change in a lot of institutions as well. You don't have to re- relocate, but we've provided an incentive to do that, Dr. Strand, um, you know, leading the, the residency program. Um, things that are church-based, not necessarily you know seminary-based, but residencies like the one at your church, at yeah. Church, or like at my church, Liberty Baptist. I think churches in the orbit of seminaries should be thinking in terms of providing means, uh, you know, avenues of, of formation and discipleship, so that students do not feel like, um, gosh, if I leave, you know, where I'm at to go to school, 
I'm going to be, um, you know, divorced from, mm-hmm. you know, church training and, and discipleship for three or four years. Yeah. I'll just pursue my education. Because thinking that way means, well, why should I leave? I can just do it online. Mm-hmm. And you can get a valuable education online at, at, at um, you know, any major seminary. But I think some of those adaptations are really going to become increasingly necessary um, to create really kind of well-formed, spiritually formed um, students and, and then ministry leaders going in into the future. That's right. Um, anything else beyond that is probably like way above my pay grade <laughs> we seem to be thinking about financial cuts. Uh, the other thing that I was thinking just on, on the, you know, in the car on the way over too is um, and just in terms of incentivizing residential education and, an in, in, you know, increase in residential um, education is um, because I think the rising generation cares more for the local church and their life in the local church than, say, my generation necessarily did. Um, you know, when when we were their age, um, I think having a faculty that um, is involved in their own local church, so they bring almost a pastoral sensibility. So no matter what class you're taking, mm-hmm. you're very likely, for instance, here to be in, you know, a theology class or an apologetics class or ethics class with a guy who is a bivocational pastor or who's an elder at his church or, or something like that. Um, and so you have a, a real connection, mm-hmm. a vital connection on the instructional level to the life of the local church, mm-hmm. I think, as well. Um, I know that doesn't solve the financial crisis necessarily, but I just would hate to see that the adaptation that everyone's going to start making is to just move purely to technological innovation. Yep, that's right. We got to do that to keep up, of for course. sure, for sure. Uh, um, but I, I hope that we won't give up, you know, sell out the, the, uh, you know, the home too soon. I agree. Okay. Okay. Um, last headline we we're going to talk about here is uh, um, e- even more sober mind, uh, you know, sobering or serious than uh, previous headlines here. And it essentially revolves around the latest uh, revelations about Ravi Zacharias, um, famous apologist, well-known, well-respected in the evangelical movement for several generations now, actually, um, who recently passed away. Uh, before he passed, of course, there were some allegations of sexual impropriety um, related to kind of uh, texting, email scandals, that, that sort of thing, accusations. Um, after his death, there have been some new allegations that have been reported by World Magazine and Christianity Today, which, of course, doesn't make them true necessarily, but makes them, I think, um, worthy of consideration beyond if it's just some kind of gossip blogger or something like that. Um, in my mind, these are credible um, allegations related to spas that mm-hmm. um, Ravi Zacharias owned or co-owned and um, allegations of uh, really sexual harassment and, and um, perhaps sexual abuse in, in those contexts. So my desire, Ronnie, isn't really to kind of litigate those allegations on the podcast um, or even to kind of you know, dig in piece by piece to the different things people have said. Um, I don't know where you stand. We didn't discuss this previously in terms of whether you find them credible or not. But um, I think just looking at it from the celebrity Christian problem, which I, I hope we can all agree is 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 a problem mm-hmm. or poses a huge problem. That's right. Um, I don't think it's sinful to be well-known. I don't think it's sinful to have a platform. But it it just comes with increasing temptations and increasing troubles and um, whether you know Ravi, you know, is guilty of these things or not, he's the latest and and really a long line. We've just taken so many hits. Yes, we have to talk about this. Mm-hmm. We can't just keep saying, "Well, people are sinners," and move on. There's a fundamental dysfunction 
in the system of some kind, mm-hmm. not just in our, our, our hearts. That's where it begins. But there's some breakdown here, and I just thought maybe we could discuss that. So whatever you think, listener, yeah. on, on the Ravi Zacharias, you know, allegations, um, you know, think of someone who, you know, the allegations you do believe, I suppose, and, and put them in this place. And let's just talk about how do we prevent this? From happening, what's the major issue? Yeah, this is this headline is almost the exact reverse of a previous conversation we've had on the podcast, which was our um, our, our episode just admiring on Packer on Packer. Yeah. yeah, just admiring not just what he accomplished in his life, but that he finished the race well. And I know that you and I both think the same thing about someone like John Piper. Um, you know, he he's just done so well and been so faithful throughout his life. And I, I told someone the other day, one of our pastoral residents at church, that we're desperate at this point for those guys. Yeah. Like, I, I'm, like, desperate to hear that the men that I respected finished well. And the fact that so many of the men that we have respected are just simply not really does indicate there, there's a problem. And... Um, What's hard is the, the celebrity Christian evangelical culture at this point almost feels like gravity. Yeah. And it's hard because what you almost think is like, you know what, there needs to be a voice to like fight this thing. But before you know it, that voice becomes the new like platform, new Christian celebrity culture. And so I think what it's going to have to take in terms of like a system problem is a Packer, we can use him. He, he said often, especially towards the end of his life, you can't have Puritan theology without Puritan holiness. Mm. And it's going to have to take a church-wide recapturing the vision of holiness for this to make any headway, I, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you mentioned the church corporately. That is a, a glaring omission from uh, this particular instance. There is no discernible connection or, or membership that, mm-hmm. that, that Zacharias held in, in any church that we're aware of. And in fact, his, his own ministry was, um, they filed, I guess, with the IRS or, you know, to, to become a church themselves, to declare themselves a church, uh, which is a complete, you know, uh, mistaking of categories or, or confusion of categories. And I'm sure there was probably tax benefits to that or, or um, you know, means of, of administration that, w- that made that ad- advantageous to them. But that to me is like the glaring omission mm-hmm. is that there is no church membership. There is no, there's no pastor who's responsible, um, you know, for him. He's, he, he, he's kind of a world unto himself. But even on the church level, right, I mean, this is a parachurch example. Um, but even on the church level, I, I think what we're seeing is, um, you know, you mentioned a gravity. There is. There's this pull. The more power you get, whether that comes from, you know, money or just visibility or people who just like you, respect you, um, that can go to your head. It just mm-hmm. goes to your head. You, you, you begin to kind of, nobody falls all in one moment. They give up inch by inch along the way. And so you start making these little concessions and it can start with something small and not necessarily sinful, but in, you know, in, in the behavior, but in the attitude, mm-hmm. it, it is. Um, and so you just kind of, you know, you get maybe a little, more, a little bit more greedy or a little bit more envious or just a little bit more desirous of the next big, more, whatever it is. And power just goes to our heads mm-hmm. like almost nothing else. And you begin to think, um, I, have, I have license. I can get away with just about anything. 
Um, so there's no, you know, discipleship context here. There's no, you know, the big word would be accountability mm-hmm. here. There's no one who is who who knows him. Um, you know, this is just sort of an anecdotal uh, remark, but someone in publishing who would have, you know, be more privy um, to kind of, you know, uh, relational proximity, I suppose, to um, to Zachariah said that um, he didn't really do friendship. He didn't really have friends, and there's just something about the the accountability of community mm-hmm. and and people alongside you, not just yes men, mm-hmm. but but people who will ask you about your heart and how things are going. Um, so certainly, there's the practicalities of accountability. Um, you know, you know, at certain levels, maybe even at the beginning level, should other people be able to have access to your email and your text messages? And so you can't do things in secret. I mean, you can mm-hmm. always get around those things if you're desirous to do it, but there just seems to be a failure at so many points along the way that could have prevented mm-hmm. this this bigness. If if there was somebody authorized to say, um, I don't think that's right, yep. or I don't think you should do that. Uh, but I know this is really a huge uh, blow to those who um, have been ministered to by you know by his work. Um, I was asked recently why I've, I haven't said anything you know online about about Ravi on Twitter or or, or otherwise, and it's not because I um, you know doubt the allegations or, or, or anything like that. But it it would feel pers- it would feel cheap to me personally, um, if only because um, I have no he was not influential. Yeah. To me, which is um, interesting, because I read a lot of people along you know along the way that would that everybody else read along with him, R. C. Sproul and mm-hmm. others, and um, but I've never read a Ravi Zacharias book. Yeah, same. Um, I'm in the same boat. Um, you know, I don't know that I've I've heard him a few times on the radio and appreciated what I heard, but um, he just wasn't influential in my discipleship or my mm-hmm. formation, and so to kind of weigh in would almost kind of it wouldn't cost me anything. Yeah, that's right. To do that. Um, so it's not because I don't have opinions or don't think, you know, that, you know, or think that sharing them would be wrong or anything. It just, it just feels cheap. It just mm-hmm. feels like it'd be, I'd be, you know, I'd be throwing something from the peanut gallery, yeah. you know, kind of thing. Um, so, yeah. So I think the bottom line for us in, in really all of these conversations, like the, you know, I'm trying to think of a, a through line for all of these, yeah. these headlines, the I mean, state of theology, to see what you higher think. ed, and the Ravi Zacharias, uh, conversation or allegations. Um, is really the importance of the local church and discipleship mm-hmm. and all that that entails. That's right. Accountability, friendship, community, being known, knowing others and being known. Um, it's so vitally important. The, the Lord um, created the church through the gospel for a reason. Mm. And I, th- I think the deeper that we will commit to it and submit to the life of the local church, in, in a sense, lose ourselves in, in the local church, the more reasons we see for that, the more detached you get, the less reason you see for it. And it has so many, you know, far-reaching impacts mm-hmm. and, and deep impacts. Listener, thank you for uh, paying attention to our rambling <laughs> through these <laughs> headlines. I hope you enjoyed this first installment. We'll do another one fairly soon as well. If you enjoyed the podcast, as always, please give us a good review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to uh, your podcast. And as always, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.